Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I'm bringing you this podcast from the iHeart Breakthrough Radio Studios in Philadelphia. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Center for Applied Genomics, also known as CAG, is one of the world's largest genetics research programs. CAG works to identify the genes that cause complex medical disorders in children. They're looking for genetic causes of diseases such as cancer, autism, diabetes, obesity, schizophrenia, ADHD, and autoimmune disorders, just to name a few. These are very different diseases, but CAG's objective is the same in each case, to use their discoveries to develop new diagnostic tests and new therapies for pediatric diseases. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to the founder and director of the Center for Applied Genomics, Dr. Halkin Halkin-Arsen. So Dr. Halkin-Arsen, let's start by explaining to the listeners how you define genomics. Yeah, thank you, Madeline, and it's a pleasure to be here. So genetics and genomics are terms that we use often interexchangeably, but genetics in particular usually refers to studies of the function of the units of the genome that we call genes. So they examine the genes, the genetic variation that differs between people in these genes, and the heritability of these variants and how they associate with different phenotypes or traits, such as eye color, skin color, and other features that may be disease-related. And if you look at the term genomics, genomics sort of often is classified as a subgroup of genetics, but genomics really refers to the entire genome in an organism. So you are studying, say, structural variation, function, evolution of the entire genome that can be in a human, can be in an animal, can be in a plant or other organisms. There are sort of subclassifications that often are mentioned. So in genetics, you, you often talk about molecular genetics and clinical genetics, cytogenetics, population genetics, et cetera, et cetera. So human genetics is very complex, but typically Genetics genomics is used interexchangeably. Well, it is complex, and I think you did a really right. nice job of explaining it to everybody who's listening. So I know that you're a pediatric pulmonologist. So I'm really curious, and I think the audience would be too, how did you ever get into the field of genomics? I uh, sort of started as a clinician and wanted to really develop as a clinician, but then got interested in research. And initially, this was really initiated by my training down at CHOP when I was working on asthma. And I started having interest in genes and the genetics of asthma. I think it might be helpful for you to talk about how your native land of Iceland has played into everything that you've been doing. That is true. Iceland is really sort of unique because it's an island which is isolated, has a very defined population that originated from Norway and sort of the Catholic islands, if you will, Scotland, Ireland, and UK. And Iceland, it became very important to sort of know about, you know, who were your relatives because you had to call upon people to help defend yourselves because there were battles, you know, among these Vikings. There was a genealogy and registry recorded in Iceland from the settlement from 830. And we leverage this in Iceland, and we now have a genealogy book of Iceland that has all living Icelanders, and essentially all Icelanders who have ever lived in Iceland, over a million people. And I can, for example, trace myself 
65 generations all the way into Norway in the year about 850. So it's fascinating. But this allows you to link together patients who have the same disease into family pedigrees and study how information sort of flows from one generation to the next. So if you have a gene that is defective, it travels through the family pedigree and you can map it very easily in the Icelandic population because of the genealogy. So that was why we were way ahead of the world in the old days. And I guess that influenced you just a little bit in terms of how you ended up in the field of genomics. Tiny touch, tiny (laughs) touch, right. With the genealogy of Iceland, you can sort of, you know, map out genes very easily because you can follow how they travel from one generation to the next. And then all the people who have the same disease, they share the exact same part of the genome. So that makes it very easy to identify genes. But it's much more difficult to do this in sort of, you know, heterogeneous populations such as the one in the U.S. And we now have tools. And when I moved back to Philadelphia back in 2006, we had just started to develop tools that sort of allow you now to screen and and really comb the entire genome independent of any family relations. And these are called genome-wide association studies. So we have sort of capitalized on this at CHOP now for more than a decade, published probably about six, 700 papers from it. And now we're moving into sort of, you know, what, what we call whole genome sequencing to really get the most finest resolution of the genome by sequencing every base pair in the genome. And there are about six billion of them. So that's huge. And that's why you have all that high computing power in your lab. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. I gave a whole list of diseases that you've been studying in the Center of Applied Genomics. Maybe you can tell me about the breakthroughs that you've discovered in just some of these diseases. Yeah, I mean, one of the very early diseases we worked on was actually in uh, cancer. And you mentioned cancer first. Uh, This was a collaboration with the cancer group at CHOP, John Maris, uh, Yale Moss, and others because I had just come from Iceland sort of with the genealogy and mapping of genes, there were certain rare families in in the U.S. that John and and, and his sort of, you know, uh, collaborators had collected, and about 10 or 11 of them. And this allowed us to apply that same method, and we mapped out a locus that John subsequently sequenced, and he found the variants in a gene which is called ALK, or anaplastic lymphoma kinase, which I'm sure you're very f- well familiar with, because at the time, Pfizer was actually doing a drug trial in patients with lung cancer. When we identified these mutations and showed that there was a gain of function, or the gene was always sort of working when it was supposed to shut down in between, because this mutation drove the cells to sort of become a cancer cells and and continue to proliferate. But when we took this to Pfizer, it became clear that the only patients, and Pfizer didn't know about this at the time, who responded to their drug were patients who had these type of mutations. And we found this in children with neuroblastoma. So if you think about sort of how the genetics can help with discovery and development, here we have 18-month-old babies with a mutation and there are 70, 80-year-olds individuals with lung cancer who, you know, have smoked for 20, 30, 40 years, and they have the identical underlying molecular defect, and you treat them exactly the same way. No one would ever have thought that this was even, you know, a possibility. 
And this is what the genetics tells you. And not only was it lung cancer, it was lymphoma, it was colon cancer, and multiple other cancers that sort of a subset of these patients had mutations and responded to the drug. So it was fascinating. Among other diseases, we found the first common variant uh, in autism. We published that paper in Nature back in 2009. And actually, Time magazine called this one of the most scientific breakthroughs at the time. So, I mean, that was really obviously rewarding. It's a great uh, validation. Uh, great that. validation of, mm-hmm. of that. This was a very interesting uh, region of the genome because there was no gene in where we found the association signals. The association signal basically tells you that the patients who have autism, they share the same region of the genome much more commonly than someone who doesn't have autism. And then when we did additional work, and we and others, there actually turned out to be a molecule which is called a non-coding RNA. And non-coding RNA is this sort of a remnant gene that probably was very important, say, 5,000 years ago, and now we don't need it anymore. And it just sits there, but it had a sequence which was identical to a sequence of a neuronal gene sitting on the X chromosome. And what this non-coding RNA does is that it binds to that gene and blocks the ability of a gene called MSN to make a protein, and protein are sort of the building blocks that we are made of. And so neuronal development did not take place. So communication, memory, and neuronal growth is shut down when you have this. So there's about 19% of autism patients who have this particular variant. And we are now working on an animal model to try to develop a therapy because we think we could prevent this by blocking this interference from this non-coding RNA that this may be something that could treat not everybody, but a sizable subset of patients with autism. So that was another fascinating discovery. And then we made a discovery in ADHD. Similarly, we found that there are you know, certain receptors that are regulating sort of the communication between the cells in the brain. We call them neurotransmitters. And these particular receptors are called metabotrophic glutamate receptors. And they are involved with regulation of cognition, learning, memory, attention, sleep, and all of these sort of important biological functions that affect patients who have ADHD. And not only did we find this in ADHD, we also found it in autism, we also found it in schizophrenia, we found it in Tourette syndrome, in anxiety, anorexia, and several other conditions. And this sort of was a very important discovery to sort of point the direction to the fact that there are genetic causes for ADHD because parents often sort of blame themselves for that they were not good enough parents or the child is misbehaving. For the first time, a biological reason why significant number, 25% of kids have ADHD. So that was a major breakthrough in that setting. Oh, yeah. What a wonderful validation it is. A lot of people talk about precision medicine. Yeah. Maybe you can give us an example of how this work informs precision medicine or is part of precision medicine and maybe another discovery that you've made in one of the diseases I talked about. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because precision medicine is really sort of founded on the concept that the genome has all these base pairs, six billion of them. And then there's differences in these base pairs on the average, maybe every 150 to 200 base pairs apart. So it's a lot of variation, but only few of them are important. 
So precision medicine is all about finding these important variants that really impact on medication efficacy, adverse events, disease susceptibility, and the like. For example, in inflammatory bowel disease, we identified a genetic variant in approximately 15% of the kids who have that condition. And we can identify these individuals by taking a, you know, just a swab or a sputum sample from them, genotype this variant, and then inform the individual that this variant is present or not. And we are now developing a new therapy that we believe is going to be effective and we can hopefully treat these children who had very little sort of options for other treatments uh, before because they were all non-specific. They were not based on this type of a precision of finding a variant and then developing a therapy that sort of reverses the consequences of the variants and makes you healthy again. Oh, so amazing. And you've got so many other diseases that you're working on. Is there one thing in particular that you see as a personal breakthrough or something that you're most passionate or excited about in your work? So there are sort of a couple of uh, things that come to mind. And one time I was consulted on a patient who had a particular condition which is called a lymphatic disorder. So lymphatic disorders are the lymphatic vessels that sort of overgrow and leak. So there is fluid that leaks into the lungs, into the heart, into the belly, and all over the body. The causes of most of these lymphatic disorders is unknown. And this patient was very sick at the time. And I somehow mentioned to the family that, you know, by the way, we are doing this large-scale sort of genomic study at CHOP. If they had any interest in participating, just to let me know. And I would send somebody to get a sample. And sure enough, they decided to participate. And then the child sort of got worse and worse and worse. And to the point that there was really nothing that sort of could be done for him. And then at just around that time, we find this new mutation that has never been described before in anybody, which is a completely impacting a sort of a signaling pathway that no one has sort of thought about being involved with this condition before. And what we did is that we took that mutation, we put it into a zebrafish, and the zebrafish developed abnormal lymphatic vessels, and we figured a way to treat the zebrafish with a drug that sort of blocks this particular pathway. And the zebrafish was cured, basically. And then we took the cells from the patients, we did the same, and everything disappeared. And we got subsequently permission, because this drug was not improved in children or anybody. So we got approval to sort of almost like a compassionate use of this drug to try it in the child. And at the time, he couldn't stand up from a tear. He was on high level of oxygen at home and basically all swollen and really, really sick. Three, four months from there, he was walking. And a year later, his whole lymphatic system had completely restructured into a normal lymphatic system. He was biking, running around, and doing all kinds of regular activities. So just almost like a miracle. And the other example that I want to mention, because it relates to Iceland, it sort of is a founder mutation in Iceland. A founder mutation means that there was a mutation that happened many hundred years ago and now had segregated in the families. And this is a very unfortunate uh, mutation that results in a stroke, often in neurodegenerative or dementia-like conditions in these patients. And there are, you know, a few hundred patients in Iceland who have this, and it just so happened that 
a relative uh, or family member with absolutely had no idea that this mutation was segregating had this. So this sort of provoked my interest to study it, and I got samples and cells, and we found a way to actually block the consequences of this mutation because what happens is that there's a protein that is being made and it forms dimers and oligomers and polymers. And this is actually a complex of a protein which is called cystatin C and amyloid. And amyloid, as you know, has, is well known in, in dementia and Alzheimer's disease and alike. And this complex, when it segregates and aggregates together, gets precipitated in the vessels and blocks the vessels and the patients get stroke or they get dementia. And we have now a therapy, we believe, that basically blocks this from happening. And we've actually shown in preliminary studies in a handful of patients that we can reduce the precipitation of this protein by about 70% over about a year of therapy. And now we are going to do a clinical trial in this population, probably about 50 patients to sort of see you know, is, is this really happening or not? And if it is happening, then it probably will impact on dementia as well and could be a future sort of, you know, opportunity for a much bigger, broader opportunity. It seems like with your work, the possibilities are limitless. And I feel so lucky to have you and your Center for Applied Genomics at CHOP because it's really the foundation for so much of the other research that's happening at CHOP. It also provides us an opportunity to find drug discoveries and other therapies to not only diagnose, but treat and maybe even cure some of these genetically linked diseases. So I'm really thrilled that you came to share your complex stories that really have translated into, as you said, miracles for some of the patients that you've cared for and that have been cared for at CHOP. So that's all the time we have for today. And Dr. Harkin-Arson, I just want to thank you for joining me. And for those of you who are listening in to learn more about the Center for Applied Genomics at CHOP, please go to caglab.org. And to learn more about how you can be part of the tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell, and thank you for listening.